Well, we're going to begin Jeremiah chapter 4 this evening, and uh, we're going to go about halfway through. Well, it's really not quite halfway, but almost. We're going to go about ten verses this evening. Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah has been called by the Lord, called even before he was in his mother's womb, for this most important ministry, mission, to warn the children of Judah in particular and the children of Israel in general that because of their sins and their disobedience before the Lord that they would have to face certain judgment and uh, in essence we begin to see somewhat of the personal burden that comes upon Jeremiah. We'll see it in the last verse we look at tonight, verse 10. But uh, it made me realize how much we need to get to know the man Jeremiah as much as the prophet Jeremiah. And realize the importance of knowing and and realizing that every call that God gives to every person of his body, of the church. Whether we consider it to be a major work or a minor work or a major calling or a minor calling, whatever. Every calling of God is a, is a, is a major call. It may not seem that way to us. But it's a major call. Because God called you. As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has called you to your specific ministry. And so, as we pick up in what has been a, a time of, of awakening for, for Israel and Judah, and a time of warning, there also has been a time of, of, of a reminder that if, if they will just return, if they'll just come back to the Lord, that he has promised them blessing. Let's let's consider consider that because as we see that in verse one. I'm going to read verses one through four, and I want to pray and then get into our study. But in verse one it says, "If you will return, O Israel." Now, that particular statement is really speaking to all of Israel, both Israel and uh, the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight. Then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear, the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him, in him, and in him, well, that's hard to say, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins. Of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Shall we pray? Father, as we begin the study of this particular passage and this particular chapter tonight in Jeremiah chapter 4, We ask for 
the wisdom and the understanding from your Holy Spirit. To be able to grow in our understanding of what this means, not only for the time that was written and for the time that would be prophesied, but Lord, for our time today. What do these things mean to our hearts? What, what can they do to allow us to see our need to make changes in our lives in accordance to your will? I pray, Father, that we will be attentive, Lord, to your spirit, to your word, and to your heart. For indeed, Lord God, you care for the heart of each and every person in this room. They're not here by accident. They're not here by happenstance. Each and every one is here by your hand. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, for that wisdom to come. But may we have attentive minds and hearts, receptive minds and hearts. Write these things, Lord God, upon us today. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear, listen to this, and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment and righteousness. You know, there is a spiritual jargon that is adopted by many a Christian and sometimes by those who would like to be classified as Christian. We've all heard the terms and the phrases like praise the Lord, thank you Jesus, hallelujah, glory to God. Amen, brother. You know, we, we can come up with a whole lot of things that we hear people say. But now, it's not to say that there is anything wrong in using these phrases. In fact, we should use them and know when to use them properly and wisely and discerningly. But at times, some people who try to get our attention uh, may use these phrases simply to impress us into thinking they believe what we do about Christ. Well, you know, this is not a, a, a new phenomenon or, or observable fact. Uh, actually, spiritual jargon, whether sincerely and insincerely, has been spoken for millennia. Take, for instance, the passage that we're studying tonight. Jeremiah was prophesying that God was calling his people, Israel, along with Judah, to return to him. And in our text, he spells out steps to genuine repentance. He points things out to them that they need to hear to do to return to Him and to return to blessing, to return to redemption. First of all, the people must turn away from idols and from worshiping all false gods. Verse 1, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to Me, and if you will put away your abominations out of My sight, in other words, put away all of your idols, I mean, get rid of them, don't, don't just put them in a drawer, but get rid of them, and get them out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. Secondly, the people must no longer stray from God. And thirdly, they must live and swear by God's name only, by God's name alone, and consider how this step is phrased. And you shall swear, the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. 
The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Now, the Lord lives was one of the spiritual jargons being used in those days. That's what they would say to each other. Oh, the Lord lives. Whether they believed it or not, they said, the Lord lives. Many times, we've heard people say something to that effect. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, and all of these things. But do they believe it? Do they really believe it? And do they believe it in their hearts? So this was one of those phrases in that time that was used without any specific meaning from the heart. For the most part, they were empty words. They were empty words to the Lord because their hearts were far from God. You know, some people today may think themselves spiritual when they say, praise the Lord, but it isn't in knowing how to talk, but in knowing how to walk. It isn't in knowing how to talk, but in knowing how to walk. Are we, in other words, walking the talk? There are a lot of people today who can talk the talk, but can they walk the talk? Can they walk the Word of God? Are they walking the Word of God? Are we walking the Word of God? Are we walking in and for the glory of Christ? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. This is probably one of the the most powerful things that Jesus said to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father in heaven. Now what's the difference? A person who says, Lord, Lord, is, is talking the talk. But a person who does the will of, of the Father is walking the talk. He says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day. In that day, let me just explain that. In that day would be the day that they stand before the Lord Himself. And they will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? I want you to think about that particular statement. Do you think that a person will stand before Christ or before God in judgment and lie to Him? I don't believe so. I don't believe a person will stand before God. Now, they'll stand before me, before you, you know, and lie to and lie. There's a lot of lying going on today. But when we stand before God, you think somebody is going to lie to God? See, this isn't an issue of lying here before the Lord. There are people today going around saying, Lord, Lord, oh, listen, you know, they're, trying to, they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're doing one thing or another in the name. They're doing wonders. Things are happening. This is what you have to consider. That's happening today. People are saying, Lord, Lord, but then what does Jesus say? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, that's a pretty heavy heavy thought that Jesus is going to say. Do you notice he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He doesn't say, depart from me, you liars. The practice of lawlessness is going about 
using the name of Christ in vain and possibly doing things, but the heart is far from knowing who Jesus is. This is one of those statements that says, you know, we need to check everything out that people are saying to us on TV, saying to us on the radio, saying to us in magazines, saying to us in books, looking at everything, praying with discernment to say, Lord Jesus, is this a viable uh, help for my Christian walk or not? Because if we start hearing things as if to say, oh, he said Lord, or he said Jesus, hey, you know the Jehovah's Witness will talk about Jesus, the Mormons will talk about Jesus, not the same Jesus, but they'll talk about it. You see right there, you know, we don't have to use a lot of discernment to know that there's something wrong. But when it sounds right, when it smells right, when it looks right, but is the heart right? That's what we have to consider here. So what does Jesus want from us? Notice the next verse, Matthew 7:24. Therefore Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. Do you see that phrase, and does them? That's the phrase you want to mark in your Bible. Circle it, surround it, highlight it, put arrows toward it, stars over it, under it, and does them. Whoever hears and does, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. A person who walks the talk, you see. He wants, not, he wants us not only to hear the words, but to do them and to live what we say we believe. To live what we say we believe, or else our faith is empty and worthless. Our faith would be worthless faith. And worthless faith is no faith. No trust in the Lord. No acknowledgement of God. No acknowledgement of the work of Christ. If we only talk the talk, but do not live out our faith in Christ. You see, James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, here James says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. I want you to notice some comparison here with what James says and with what Jeremiah's prophecy has been and is, is, is coming forth as. It says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. In other words, put away your, your sins. Put away your abominations. Put away your idols. And receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive the word into your heart. Receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now please keep that in mind. But notice verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you only hear the word and not do it, then you're deceiving yourself into thinking that just by receiving the word and hearing it and not doing it, that you're okay. That's what James means here. Notice what he goes on to say, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You hear, but you don't, maintain, you don't retain. Then stay with you. 
You look in the mirror, you go away, you forget what you saw. You hear the Word of God, you go away. Without doing it, you forget what you heard. And then he goes on to say, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. As James is telling the church this, so was Jeremiah telling the children of Israel and of Judah. The same thing. Get rid of your sin. Get rid of it. Put it away. Put away those abominations that have caused God to be wanting to put you into some kind of, you know, uh, judgment. And if you forsake all of that and begin to do the word that you have received, I'll bless you. So we see the same thought in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So getting back to our text then, when we consider the promise the Lord is giving His people, if they return to Him, it is essentially the same. If you will put away your abominations out of My sight, then you shall not be moved. In other words, your faith in the Lord will be solid, it will be steadfast, because you'll be doing the Word rather than just hearing it. And then if you would swear in the Lord alone, in other words, what you say, if you will swear in the Lord alone in an honest faithful, genuine, just, and righteous way, then Israel and Judah would be blessed by God and glory in Him, and they would be a witness of His blessings and glory to the nations. In other words, one day they will mean what they say and say what they mean. And so as we read on, we focus on the fourth step toward redemption for Israel. Remember, there are some steps along here that the Lord has been giving them. Steps to repentance. Steps to restoration. The fourth step is found in verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Notice now specifically He's speaking to Judah because they're the ones who are in His time who are getting ready to be judged by Babylon. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. That step was to break up the hard, unplowed grounds of their hearts. Or the unplowed ground of their hearts. Fallow ground is soil that has become hard due to the lack of use. We've often seen pictures of fallow ground. Solid, cracked ground like mud that has been given too much time to be dry and to be parched. Too much time to lie untouched and unplowed. The fact that it is dry mud suggests that at one time it was fertile soil and may have even been reaped from. That's not great English there, but that's, you know, might have been reaped from there. All this sounds very much like the hearts of those who at one time were affected by the love, mercy, grace, and presence of the Lord, but have since lain hard and fellow. Just got away from God. And their hearts dried up. No water was hitting it any longer. No one was throwing seed or soil on it anymore. Besides, even if it did, what would happen? 
It wouldn't penetrate the ground. It couldn't grow on top of the mud or the dry mud. Well, the Lord also commands that they were not to sow seed among thorns. Thorns that can choke out the life that is trying to grow. And thorns will also choke out the fruit that God wants to produce in a person's life. You know, Jesus talked about thorns. I want to take you to Matthew 13 for just a moment. Bring this passage to your remembrance here, because I know that most of us have read the parable of the soils. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, He says, Then He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and this is the part we want to look at. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He, he who has ears to hear, let, let him hear. Hear, listen to this. After a time, the disciples got together with Jesus alone. They asked him, can, can you explain this particular parable? And Jesus went on to explain it. But if you jump down to verse 20, we just touched on the parts that we, we want to concern ourselves with. He, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. You see what Jesus is saying? If, it, if seed has fallen on, on your heart and your heart is just stony soil, it, 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 it may for just a little bit be received, but then it, it can't grow and, and, uh, very well. And then, of course, uh, it goes away. But now he who received seed among the thorns, it says, is, is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. Notice, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And it's talking about the soil of the heart. Then, that, you know, we, we, we may want to receive the, the word of God, we want to receive the truth of it, but we're so tied up to the things of this world and the, the cares of this world matter more than the things of God and, 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 and then we begin to look at riches as, as, as maybe that's the answer to our life's problems, but that's a deceitful thing, and so it chokes out the truth and the word that God wants to say to a person by saying, you know, if you'll trust me, I'll give you everything you need. I'll take care of you. It becomes unfruitful. So when we get too worldly and focused on things, I used to like to say, you know, when we get focused on stuff, like stuff, we've got stuff all over the place. Some, some of us have master's degrees in stuff. There's even some who have doctorate degrees. They just got stuff everywhere. When we focus on those things, those things choke out the growth of the Word of God. And do so. 
in our lives. But if we, want to, if we want new growth in our Christian walk, our hearts need to be broken from time to time. So, go back to verse 3. What, is, what does uh, the Lord say through the prophet to the people? He says, break up the fallow ground. Those of you who may have grown up on a farm or on a ranch can understand that if, especially on a farm, if you're going to plan something, and then after a certain amount of time, you know, the, the land has been left alone for a season and, and maybe the ground is fallow for your sowing of seed to, to work, you have to go and you have to plow the soil. You have to break up the fallow ground. God sometimes has to do that with us. Our hearts need to be broken from time to time. You know, we can often get too complacent and the things of God don't penetrate our hearts very far, if at all. Complacency is a major dilemma, a major problem in the church. People get too comfortable. They expect others to do all the work. They don't do anything themselves. And eventually uh, they dry up. And when you dry up, then your spiritual life suffers. There's that need for that constant refreshment of the water of the Word of God, that constant refreshment of the fountains of living water, which is Jesus Himself, the constant refreshment of the water that comes through the Holy Spirit into our lives on a daily basis as we say, God, fill me with Your Spirit. Do that in me so that I can walk in Your ways and do those things that will honor You, bless You, bring people to You. Bring, bring the knowledge of Christ to their hearts so they might be saved and come into the kingdom of God and be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. But when all of that doesn't matter, you see, then we dry up and what happens? We become fruitless. Unfruitful. What turns all of that around is, is true repentance. It is acknowledging, Lord, I have sinned. Lord, I have fallen. Lord, I have strayed. Lord, I have, I have, I have just turned away from you. And, and you know, I didn't expect it to happen. You know that the, one of the greatest problems in an individual Christian life is drifting. Drifting. It begins subtly. It begins so, you know, with such this, this little thing of, of you know, you, 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 you had a, a focus on things with the Lord and you kept that. As long as you kept that focus with the Lord, yeah, you had to work at it. Yeah, you had to spend, set the time aside. Yes, you needed to sacrifice a little time to spend time with the Lord. But hey, it was well worth it because the refreshment that comes from, from that intimate relationship with Christ is great. But, you know, after a while, you forget to do it or else you say, you know, I've got to put that aside because I've got to do other things. The little bit of drifting. If any of you have ever gone fishing on a boat on a, on a, on a slow-moving river, you'll, you'll understand this. You know, unless you anchor down, you can go out there and, 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 and even on a lake, you know, a good-sized lake, you can you get out there a little bit and just kind of you know, throw your line in the water and you're out there you know, kind of bobbing a little bit and you go to sleep, you know. And then, you know, before, you, know you, you kind of fall asleep and, and, and then before you know it, you're about half a mile from where you started. Or maybe a mile. And if it's in a river, you're in real trouble because you have no way to get back up river. Because you've drifted down in a way. 
That all happens subtly. This is the way the enemy works on our lives. He doesn't do this major thing of trying to get us to all of a sudden just stop everything about loving the Lord and serving the Lord. He just works on us subtly. But if He can catch us and make us change our ways of, of, of coming into, in, into relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ and, and get us to change that, he, He's got us. Then all of a sudden, before we know it, we're not in church, we're not praying, we're not trusting the Lord. And then what happens? Then we realize we've got to call Him to the Lord. Isn't God good though? Isn't God wonderful to know that when you finally come back to Him, He's not going to hold those things against you. He's going to bring you back and say, You know what? Stay close to me. Stay by my side. I love you too much. But I'm not going to go out there and all of a sudden yank you this way, yank you that way. If your heart's not in it, you've got to love me. With all your heart. I've got to be the most important person in your life. See, God can say that. You know why? Jesus can say that because He's perfect. So true repentance, true acknowledgement of your sin. God, yes, I've left you. Yes, I need to come back. Know that He'll accept you back. Know that He'll take you back. But you must then become a doer of the Word again. True repentance. By the way, grief over sin. How much time was that? Okay. I've drifted. But in a good way. <laughs> I, I, I got my anchor though. I got the anchor. I'm going to pull right back. Don't worry. True repentance. And by the way, grief over sin. Are you sorry for your sin? Because you've grieved the Holy God. You see, too many people today don't understand true repentance and true sorrow for sin. They're thinking of their sorrow as, I'm sorry I got caught. That's not true contrite sorrow. We need to grieve over our sin, what we have done to a holy God. But you know, God is a forgiving God. God is a loving God. We, you know, I've got to keep emphasizing that. You've got to know that. But don't take that for granted. And don't take advantage of that. And then thirdly, true repentance, grieve over sin, and then turn. These things are necessary. Turn. That's what he's telling the children of Israel. That's what he's telling the children of Judah. You need to turn back to me. Return to me. Come back to me. And Judah in particular had become so hard. Listen, they were so dry. They were so unfruitful. And they were so consumed with the world that they were in danger of great judgment. Look at, look, I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10 verses 12 and 13. For here again is the, is, is, is the admonition. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness. In other words, get right with God. Get right with me again. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. If you return, what you gather will be my mercy. 
And then he says, break up your fellow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. Now notice what he says. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. Folks, this this should awaken in our very hearts the very fact that even though we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are Christians, we are saved by the blood of the Lamb, uh, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I mean, there is no greater salvation than that which has been given given to us through Jesus Christ. We need to understand that in our flesh, we have to guard ourselves from ever trusting in our own ways. And in the multitude of mighty men. That's the fourth step. And when we come to the fifth step toward redemption, we realize that the Lord is going to give His people a choice. He gives them a choice. You know what the choice is? Very simple. Turn or burn. That's it. Write it down. Turn or burn. Look at verse 4. First of all, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart or of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Whose doings? Their doings. What did Hosea say? Because you trusted in your own way. The evil of your doings. Do this. Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Lest my fury come like fire. A lot of people don't understand the holiness of God. They want to believe that there is a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. But if we listen and clearly understand the Word of God, we realize there's only one God. And that God is gracious, merciful, loving. But above all, He is holy, righteous, just, and true. He's all of that. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is love, love, love. True, true, true. Merciful, merciful, merciful. But it does say that God is holy, holy, holy. So we have to understand, God will never sin. God will never commit unrighteousness. God is full of righteousness. And has, by the way, every right to judge what he has created every right he has that right people still argue with him anyway people still get mad at him anyway people still curse him anyway people still deny him anyway you know they they do all of this and how merciful has God been that we can tell it rains upon the just and the unjust the Bible says
God desires in his own heart that none should perish, but that everyone should come to, to, to salvation in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's the God that we love and serve and know. He's not going to throw us any tricks. He's not going to throw us any, any curves. He is who He is. Some of us here have testimonies of having lived our lives so much for the devil, so much against God, so much in opposition to God. And when the Lord changed our lives, we realized how wonderful God's power is to change lives. Once I was lost, now I'm fine. Once I was blind, now I see. And we give that testimony to let people know. That's what I used to do. This is what I am now. By the grace of God, this is what I am. So the Lord says to His people, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. They're they're probably hearing this and thinking, I thought we did that when we were eight days old. And besides, we didn't do it because at eight days old, it would have been a very hard thing to do. But he's telling us to do that now. You see, circumcision was a ritual that every Jewish boy would undergo when they were eight days old. They would also be given a name and made a son of the covenant. It was meant to be a symbol of the cutting away of the flesh. And yes, the most sensitive part of the body for the male. And in doing so, brought greater sensitivity to the very depth of a, pers- of a person's life. And yet, rather than becoming something that caused, that caused them to think, God was using that as an outward expression of an inward work that He wanted to do and wanted them to know was uh, an inward work in their hearts. They just trusted the ritual rather than trusting the Lord. That's the way some people still do it today in the church. You know, they, they think that just if you get baptized, then you're saved. Or, you know, maybe we got to, you know, dedicate our child to the Lord before the congregation because that's saving them. No, that's not saving them. It's not why we do those things. We're just acknowledging God in every part of our lives. The baptism was, is something we do as a response, as a uh, doing it in obedience to the Lord uh, to identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, but you see, they did this. And this was, this was the major problem they had. They, they, they trusted in the ritual rather than trusting in the Lord. I mean, there were even some rabbis, listen to this, there were some rabbis that taught that if you were circumcised, you wouldn't go to hell. If you were circumcised as, as a male, you wouldn't go to hell. Shoot, if that was the way it was, maybe guys would be going around and saying, where's the knife? That's all it took. Well, Jews and Jesus in Paul's days thought that the ritual was a guarantee of salvation. If you remember, we've been studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning. A couple of weeks ago, we dealt with Acts chapter 15. In verse 1, certain men came down from Judea, taught the, uh, taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is heresy. That is not the word of God. But all along, God wanted them to circumcise their hearts. 
to remove that which made them insensitive to Him. Get anything out of the way that is insensitive to, that makes you insensitive to me. What would that be? Flesh. He wanted them to do surgery on their hearts and put away their callousness and their disobedience. They were callous, they were hard. And by the way, this command was not exclusive to Jeremiah's time and circumstance. You need to go all the way back to Deuteronomy. You need to go back to the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy. Yeah, go ahead. That's right. We're going there. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Y'all have Bibles? Let me see your Bibles. I'll see it. Lift them up. There you go. A little exercise today. All right. Raise your Bibles. I'll see it. All right. I haven't seen them all. Okay. Don't be reaching down underneath to get one. Should have one. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. This is all the way back. Moses' time. Long way. It says in verse 16. You see, the thought's always been there. It wasn't something that was made up later on. It's always been there. This has been what the, the circumcision is about. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Don't be stiff-necked. What animal is stiff-necked? The donkey. You want him to go forward, what does he do? Pulls back. That is backsliding. And he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Flesh is getting in the way. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, it isn't a matter of circumcising the foreskin of your, of your body physically or the flesh physically. He says the heart so that uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now you have that sensitivity to the love of the Lord in your life so that you might live you see God's all about living God is about living God is about life and not just in the physical God is about living in eternity the Apostle Paul going to the future now from this point all the way to the future in Romans chapter 2 not our future but you know future to Jeremiah Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Listen, just because you're circumcised doesn't make you a Jew, in other words. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The praise or the blessing will come from God when your heart is circumcised, not so much the foreskin of the flesh. And then in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, Paul says, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Interesting thought, interesting phrase. But Paul also declares in Philippians of his own life and testimony. If you remember earlier I mentioned, we have testimonies here. 
Listen to, test, to the testimony of the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. What is he saying? It's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. We are the circumcision who worship God. You see, if our hearts are, are circumcised before the Lord and we've cut away the, the, you know, the, the foreskin of our, of, our, of our hearts, guess what? We are now ready to worship God. We are now ready to worship Him with everything that is within us, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Now here, go, here goes Paul's testimony. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I beat you, in other words. I beat you on this. I have more confidence in the flesh. When I was Saul of Tarsus, listen to what he says. Circumcised the eighth day. Now, I know he didn't remember that. Oh, I remember when I got circumcised. Yeah, I was eight days old. No, nobody remembers that. He knows that because that was the law circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he even knew his tribe, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, which means that he had a zeal for the law, and we know that he had a zeal for the law in the way that he wanted to persecute and kill Christians. Concerning zeal, notice, persecuting the church, there it is, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Uh, he did everything he could to be right in the law always at all times. But then, verse 7, this word, this little word but, changes everything. It's a big word here. But what things were gained to me in the flesh... In the flesh, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, I would rather lose everything in this world but have the knowledge of Christ. The excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know that the word rubbish here literally in the Greek means dung, manure, fertilizer. You got the picture. I have, uh, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Second time he talks about Jesus. And be found in Him. I want to be found in Christ. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. In other words, it isn't me. It was me all along when I was Saul. It was me becoming the Hebrew of Hebrews. It was me becoming the Pharisee. It was me becoming the persecutor of the church. It was me, all me, my flesh. But, he says, that which is through faith in Christ, that righteousness is from God by faith. For what reason that I may know Him? 
Verse 10. <laughs> that I may know Him. Third time. To know Christ. And the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. Baptism. Identifying with His death. His burial. And His resurrection. Being conformed to His death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's not saying there. Hopefully I'll be resurrected. No. Since by any means I may attain. That's the testimony of one who was alive in the flesh but dead spiritually. And when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, that very moment he met the Lord who he wanted to erase out of the consciousness and the minds of all of his Jewish brethren. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul, you're just kicking against the gods. Saul died that day and was raised in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, Paul the Apostle wanted to know Christ more and more and more each day. Today, we're still called to deal with the heart and to cut away the flesh. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, John writes this tremendous exhortation to the church. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, if you ever just thought about verse 15, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of time. I'm trying to finish this, this passage here. But, but we, need to, we need to meditate. And I want you to take this home and think about what John wrote. He said, uh, by the way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, in other words, makes the world more important than, than God, then the love of the Father is not in him. See, you can, you can go to church once a week, you can go to church on Sunday and live for the world the rest of the week. Coming into the church, I know I've said this before, it's like a real well-used cliche here, but coming into the church and sitting in a church once a week doesn't make, you know, makes you no more a Christian than if you sat in your garage making, makes you a car. It's who you are in Christ. It's what you do with the things that you've heard. He goes on and he says, For all that is in the world, and here's the three things that trip so many people in the church up, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the three things that tripped up Eve and Adam. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it. 
But he who does, and there it is again, he who does the will of God abides forever. So, you see the encouragement through the scriptures now. The importance of doing rather than just hearing or rather than just talking. But doing. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Not for salvation, but from salvation. From our salvation in Christ now, we serve the Lord. We do works unto God. Now, let's move on. I mean, this might be quick here. We'll see. But uh, the last verse of this passage in John, this last verse, suggests the need for circumcision of another part of the body. The ears. The circumcision of the ears. And do you know that Jeremiah touches on this as well? Turn forward in Jeremiah, if you're back in Jeremiah chapter 4. Go to chapter 6. Just go forward a page or two. And notice what it says in verse 10. Because here's the problem, that if the flesh is, you know, uh, you know kind of taking over in your life, you're not going to hear God anymore. You're not going to hear clearly. So Jeremiah 6 verse 10, uh, verse 10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is what? Uncircumcised. Their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Some people will hear God's word and they say, oh, I don't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that. And they're going, to look for a, they're going to look for a church where they can hear things that make them happy. But I tell you this. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, studying even a passage like this in Jeremiah, it isn't so much that we want to be happy, it's that we want to be right. And we want to be right with God, and we want to be in joy uh, of the Lord, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. But we need to see reality here. We've got people around in the emerging church talking a lot about, about relevance. Well, there can't be anything more relevant than being right and real about the things that God has given us in His Word. And so if we obey what circumcision was uh, to represent, see, obeying what circumcision represents, then spiritually we are circumcised. If we obey what it represents spiritually, then we can say, I'm circumcised of the heart. The Lord is looking for a reality, not a ritual. We do that with baptism. I, I mentioned this before. Baptism doesn't save us, but it is an outward expression of what has taken place in our hearts. Now, as for Judah, if the message delivered by the prophet went unheeded, then judgment must take its course. And already the Gentile destroyer was on his way. But before this would take place, the Lord gives another warning with the blast of the shofar, the trumpet. Jeremiah 4, verses 5 and 6 now says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard towards Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. With a vision of the boiling cauldron. Do you remember that back in chapter 1? The boiling pot that was coming from the north, leaning away from the north, with a vision of the boiling cauldron being poured out from the north, still fresh in Jeremiah's mind, he calls upon all those responsible for warning the people to sound the shofar throughout the land. 
Now he follows that with a command to raise the standard or the signal toward Zion. The, the shofar was used to summon the people to worship or to flee for safety. Now you'll notice two things happen in the passage. He says, blow the trumpet, gather together, assemble. And then he says, take refuge. <laughs> he says, gather together, now get out of here. You know, that's what he's saying. But you have to assemble everybody to, to warn them what, what's coming. And then say, now take refuge. The context indicates that this order was given because the people were in danger. An enemy was on its way. When they heard the sound of the shofar, the people knew that they were in a state of emergency. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, one of the more popular or, you know, passages that deal with the shofar. Blow the shofar, the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. By the way, the shofar is the ram's horn. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Another passage is Amos chapter 3. This one is more tied together into this passage. Amos 3 verses 6 and 7. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord, does, the Lord God does nothing, nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. So, there's mention of, 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 of the blowing of the trumpet in times of danger. Now, the signal, which could have been a fire signal of some sort or a warning flag, large enough to be visible from a distance, was to transmit news of the emergency to areas farther up country. So, using this terminology implies that Jeremiah considered the crises quite serious. And then we see the enemy further described in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, uh, and we're going to go through verse 9, by the way. The lion has come up from his thicket. The lion, that's Babylon. Now, at one time the lion had been Assyria. But Assyria is no longer, and they're not going to be a power anymore. So the new lion, and we can read the book of Daniel and realize that a lion represents Babylon as well. But anyway, the lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth. Lament and wail. In other words, start crying out to the God. You know, start weeping over this situation. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes. In, in essence, what it's saying is the heart of the, 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 heart of the king and the prince, is, its courage is going to flee. That's literally what it's saying. And then it says, the priest shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder. So the approaching army of Babylon, in all its fierceness and cruelty, was like a lion that had come out of its lair to attack and to make desolate the land of Judah. Now the invasion would leave the town in ruins and without inhabitants. And as the people began to realize the coming destruction, it caused them to lament and weep and wear sackcloth. Well, that's what it should have caused them to do. And of course, this was prophesied ahead of time, so this is what they should have been doing. Uh, that sackcloth, by the way, was rough, coarse material that symbolized mourning because God's fierce anger had not been turned away. Sackcloth, uh, you know, you know what the, that um, they put potatoes in, you know, that um, wear that for a couple of days in. This is what they were when they mourned, you know, over, over their sin. But in Jeremiah, going back to chapter 26, for, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 26, for just a moment, it says, O daughter of my people, 
dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the plunder will suddenly come upon us. So look at all these warnings that are being given to, uh, to the people uh, from the Lord. I mean, sp- special dread would come upon Judah's leadership. They would be paralyzed by fear as they watched the annihilation of their country. But the destruction came partly because of their failure to provide the leadership that Judah needed. Go back to uh, chapter 2 for just a moment in verse 8. It says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. I mean, these are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they uh, they don't even know the Lord. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So this was the leadership. This is why God said, These are sheep without shepherds. But who suffers? They all suffer. They all suffer. Lastly, we arrive at what some believe to be one of the most difficult verses of Scripture to interpret. And and that's a verse that that has Jeremiah accusing God of deceiving His people. Notice what it said, verse 10. This will be our last verse tonight. But it says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem. Jeremiah just told God, you've deceived the people. I think, I, think we ought to, I think we ought to try Jeremiah, don't you think? Well, before you, you know, get out your robes, let's, let's understand the time and the place. Jeremiah said, Oh, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. You see, while it is hard for the 21st century mindset to think in such terms, an understanding of the time and, lit- and the literary order of, is, is in place here. Some modern commentators have concluded with certain translators that, that Jeremiah was suggesting it was really the prophets he was questioning, and therefore those particular translations changed the you, speaking of God, to they, speaking of them. But what we find in reality is a plea in the form of an accusation. Again, listen, it is a plea in the form of an accusation. This is a literary tool in Hebrew. Jeremiah accuses God of deceiving the people by permitting the false prophets to lull them into a sense of security when life is at stake. It is, again, both a plea for God to be merciful to a people who have trusted the wrong leaders and a plea for the people to wake up to their peril. Now, it is important to remember that God, having even the false prophets in His hands, isn't God sovereign? Isn't God in control of all things? Alright, so understand this. Having even the false prophets in His hands, God is said to do that which is for unfathomable purposes, He permits them to do these things. I want you to take, for example, Exodus 9, verse 12. Before we read it, before you read that, understand that time and again, during that time with Moses and Pharaoh, we were told, Moses hardened his heart against the Lord. Moses hardened his heart. Moses hardened his heart. Then we read this, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You see, what was set in stone now in Pharaoh's heart, God only solidified Jump all the way to the New Testament 
and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12. to Paul is talking about the lawless one coming. Paul is talking about the end times. Paul is talking about a time that's very near our time today. The coming of, of the lawless one, the coming of Antichrist and all of that. But here it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Literally it's saying they didn't receive because they didn't want to receive the love of the truth so that they might be saved. And for this reason now, verse 11, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You see what God is doing? They're not going to receive it. He sends a strong delusion. It solidifies their already made up minds and hearts that they all may be condemned who do not believe or did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he's going to judge righteously those who refuse to believe. And all he does then is just solidify the choice that they made. This is what Jeremiah is saying, God, <laughs> you've, de- you've deceived the people in this particular sense. You've let the false prophets preach their message. You know what that message was? The false prophets were going around saying, Oh, peace, peace. That, that was their message. Everything's going to be okay. They had a message of health, wealth, and prosperity. Honestly. That was their message. Everything's going to be okay. You, should, you can have everything you want. Go to temple. Give your sacrifice. You'll be all right. Are you circumcised? You're good. It wasn't from God. The message was not from God. They were telling the people that God loves them so much and He would, he would never bring this kind of catastrophe upon them, but they weren't speaking for God. The Lord had already spoken the truth to them. He had warned them of the coming judgment due to their sin. And when you have a people that don't want to hear the truth, there will always be others ready to fill the void and to give them what they want to hear. I want to close at this point because of time with what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 5. I charge you therefore before, the, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince rebuke exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth uncircumcised ears by the way and be turned aside to fables But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What is he saying? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. I want to leave you with this last thought. The heart, which is what we've heard a lot about tonight, the heart, therefore, was involved because outward worship was valueless unless the inner life was given over to God. 
The outward worship was valueless unless the inner life was given over to God. Have you given your life to God? Do you measure your worship only by what is outward? Or is it that you worship because inside you love Jesus with all your heart? And you love Him and thank Him for what He's done for you. Do you know that the Lord loves you so much right this very moment? That He doesn't want any of you to perish but for you to have everlasting life through Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn to Jesus and believe that Jesus died for your sins. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that He's risen from the dead. And you will be saved. Simple and yet profound and its eternal value to you. If you don't know Christ, today you can. If you know Jesus, but you find yourself in somewhat of the picture that we've, that we've brought forth in this passage today, and you're ready to repent of those sins that have kept you far from God, now's the time. Don't wait till Sunday. I don't know about you, it's hot in here, isn't it? It's hot up here. Some of you might be freezing. It's hot right where I'm standing. But it's a lot hotter somewhere else if you don't know Jesus Christ. You need to know the Lord. He loves you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Let's not take God's love for granted. And I speak that to those of you who know Jesus. Let's pray.